It's episode 28 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. This week's special guest is Jen Simmons, a designer advocate at the Mozilla Foundation. We talk about how the standards process affects design and how new changes to CSS are revolutionizing how we think about graphic design on the web. So let's get right to it. You're in, are you always in New York or are you just visiting? I live in New York City. Oh, okay. Okay. Where do you But live? I'm frequently not in New York. You travel a lot. You speak at a lot of conferences? I travel a lot. Yeah, I speak at a lot of conferences, especially this last year and a half. What are you talking about these days? Um, graphic design on the web, meaning mm. especially layout design, mm. because everything is changing. Everything just changed in the last year, especially March, the March of 2017, everything changed. Yeah. So all these ideas that we have about how to do layout or how to do pages or what it means to have a page layout on the web, all those ideas are now of a model that it was of an era that ended this year. <laughs> That's so, and, all right. <laughs> Well, I have about a thousand questions about that. I got a bunch of questions for you, actually. <laughs> okay. But um, let's back all the way up. And first of all, you are, what is your title? Designer and Developer Advocate at Mozilla. Designer and Developer Advocate at Mozilla. That's an amazing title. But let me kind of get my head around Mozilla because I haven't, my familiarity recently with Mozilla is mostly through like, I'm trying to learn some of the new front end technologies and uh, ending up at the Mozilla developer network all the time. So yes. I get that. But the, like the bigger mission I understand, I, I, I'm assuming is around standards and development and, and things like that. But I've just, why don't you help me? Like, give me a little re a reintroduction to Mozilla. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I honestly kind of had the same like hand wavy, I used to kind of know them, I haven't seen them around in a while kind of right. feeling before I started working there. And in the process of joining Mozilla, I, you know, I did a lot of due diligence to be like, wait, what is going on? Which companies? What are they up to? Yeah. And I learned a bunch of things that I didn't know before I applied for this job. Like, they're a nonprofit. They're actually two nonprofits. There's a foundation and a corporation. Oh, okay. Um, but... It's not a for-profit corporation, and the the way the organization is structured is kind of genius. So, like, we have no stockholders, we have no VC-backed people who want us to exit, we have no like demand to be highly profitable at the rate at which um, makes a certain kind of business model happy. Like, our goal is to is to be what we believe in, and then mission, and then Mozilla has these really strong mission statements. I mean, I think that th that in a way is what we kind of know of and have a hand wavy feeling about is like, oh yeah, Mozilla is not just in this for themselves somehow. Mozilla believes in not just web standards and the things you mentioned, which is part of it, uh -huh. but bigger than that, like Mozilla wants, and I've seen this, like I'm not, I, I have no training of what to say about this, right? So this is not official <laughs> Mozilla stuff. <laughs> I should do that. This is my own personal interpretation of the company, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But like, I really believe it because I've seen this all the time and I don't, I see smoke, you know, and I'm being blown at places and I don't buy into that stuff. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. when I say this, like, I, I, I like, I'm like, wait, no, the company really, this isn't really the company. Um, like an internet that everyone can use that everyone around the globe, no matter your economic access or the community that you live in or whatever, you have a chance to be online that the internet works well mm. for everybody that it's not just for people with certain fancy phones or certain fancy whatevers, but right. it really like it's a very global company. I get it. All right. So much bigger mission. Yeah. And, and around things like net neutrality, yeah, like yeah. net neutrality and like these public policy. And we have a bunch of super smart lawyers who are, working on a bunch of public policy stuff mm. we just like we're hiring people who their previous job was you know working for the un or working in diplomacy mm -hmm. working in international relations like those kinds of folks work at mozilla too in order to make sure and to help us you know i don't know go talk to folks in big government fancy pants people mm -hmm. places mm -hmm. and say no w this law is horrible it should not be like this this other thing needs to be like that and stuff so, like that so yeah so it reminds me a little bit of some of the things we see coming out of the bigger uh, tech companies like, you know, uh, a couple of conferences ago, Mark Zuckerberg was talking about Facebook having drones that fly around and like beam internet down to places where there is no internet and things like that. And Google has long kind of been in that, that space as well. Uh, but this is a much more sort of like from a foundation perspective, uh, a non-commercial 
uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of not almost nonpartisan, I guess. Well, like, but you know what I mean? Like, uh, like honest. Yeah. Because <laughs> when when I see companies like Google and Facebook doing those things, on the I guess on the one hand, you're like, oh, that's cool because now people in this country who haven't had access will get access to the internet. That's a good thing. Right. But then at the same time, it's like, yeah, but at what price? Yeah, because right. nothing. Like, great. So, oh, why is Google investing that money or why is Facebook interested in doing that? It's mm-hmm. because, oh, because then they become the pipes right, and right. they gather all the data about those people and they take all that data and then they become the official experts on understanding that market. And then they sell that data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, of course. Yeah. I just, <laughs> where Mozilla, <laughs> Mozilla's business model really is like, get the money we need to pay good people, market industry rates. And then do really good stuff. Where does that money come from? Yeah. The, the money comes from people using Firefox. <laughs> so so people want to help. Like you could donate to Mozilla. You can also just use Firefox. It helps. Um, because the little – the search bar, you know, the, up in oh, the right. corner, that, okay. there's that search, right? A company will pay us to be the default in that search result. And you can easily switch it. It's a big part of what Mozilla believes in is to like not – trick people into having to use a certain search result provider, but to easily make it make it like super easy to like switch from mm. whatever the default is to like DuckDuckGo or whatever you want to yep, use. Yep. But most people don't change the default. So it's it that is a very valuable little tiny piece of interface apparently. And um yeah. And we're and we're working on other business models too. Like it's not our only one, but that's that's a yeah. major one. And that really kind of points to the like the history of the Mozilla Foundation, which which came out of was it Netscape? This is like 15 years ago, right? Netscape uh, spun yeah. off an open source version of their browser when they were getting acquired by AOL. I'm sure I, I have this all wrong, but all of those were part of the mix. And this new Firefox yeah. browser came out of that effort. Is that right? Yeah, 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 something like that. Something we should like look that. it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go do that after this and then put some links in the show notes. Because there's an interesting history yeah, yeah. here that goes right back to the very foundations and beginnings of the web with this desire for there to always be a browser that was not beholden to commercial interests, I think, is where that first Yes, from. and I think, you know, most, it seems like most people these days who are building websites have not been building websites since 1994, 1996, 1999. Mm. They, they're younger, right? And so I think the web, the, the kind of culture of what it means to be a person who makes websites has changed because uh, we're getting further and further away from that early era. And that early era was all about Money? What money? I don't know. This is cool. Let's play with this. This is interesting. I'm mm. an artist. Let's do something um, creative. Let's yep. see where this goes. Let's just run an experiment on ourselves for 10 years and see what happens. Um, and it was only later, sort of in the mid 2000s, the first, the middle of the first decade of the 2000s, that that it became um, so dominant globally that the business possibilities became very obvious and huge corporations were no longer like, I don't know, whatever, we'll throw two people on it. They were like, oh no, we're pivoting our entire business. This is the future of communications and humanity. Oh, even further than that. I mean, I think there are only tech businesses now. Like there is no distinction. Every single right. company has to just yeah. be that at its core. So yeah, uh, yep. so yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and at the same time, I don't know. I've seen the tremendous benefit of having the entire world online rather than just that yes. small community that was there in the 90s. So Absolutely. Yes. But Mozilla somehow has retained – like it has long tentacles back to those early days and that early spirit of, mm, yeah. you know, we're not here to – I mean, please, the people, some of the people, the leadership of Mozilla, they're making very good livings, but it's not that kind of, um, you know, I don't know, billion dollar exit situation sure. that that dominates so much of, of our culture these days. No, no I, yeah, I do agree that it's it does feel very much like it's values driven uh, and, yeah. mission, and mission driven. And, yeah. uh, and as you say, it's appropriate to do well if that's, if that's doing well, but... Yeah. And, and willing to make, willing to make like super hard choices sometimes and say, Mm -hmm. you know, we're going to, we're going to do this, even though it's not the easiest choice, because this is what we believe in. And I don't see that enough these days, you know? Yep. Yep. It used to be that even for-profit companies would do that. People had values and they would follow their values. Sadly. (laughs) Oh, there are still some. I don't think it's all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially, especially little companies and stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, both sides. I mean. Uh, we don't have to. We don't have to debate yeah, all that. No, but I, I am, about, I am genuine. I am genuinely impressed with, for example, Tim Cook and his set of values and the way he expresses yeah. them 
as the CEO of the almost the largest company in the world, it goes back and forth. But um, that is true, you know. And Mark Benioff, Salesforce. Like I do think that that, that comes through. But no, overall, the scenario, the the context in which we push the web forward is could not be more different from where it came from. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by Casper. Casper is a company that focuses on sleep, and I'm thrilled they're supporting the show because I think getting a handle on your sleep is one of the most important things that you can do to improve almost every part of your life. I've personally spent a bunch of effort on this, working on my schedule to go to bed and get up at consistent times, and of course, creating an environment that really allows me to get the best possible rest. A great mattress may be the most important part of that, and Casper makes the perfect premium mattress and sells it online for a fraction of what it would cost in a store. Their award-winning mattress is developed in-house and has a sleek design and is delivered in an impossibly small box. In addition to the mattress, Casper also now offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. An in-house design team of engineers spent thousands of hours developing the Casper mattress. It's obsessively engineered at a shockingly fair price, so it's no surprise that they have an average of 4.8 stars across more than 30,000 online reviews. Their San Francisco research and development team have developed a proprietary proprietary foam that relieves pressure and increases airflow. Then they combined it with springy comfort layer to contour to your body and keep you cool. This means Casper mattresses have just the right sink and just the right bounce. Buying a Casper mattress is so easy and completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and free returns in the US, Canada, and get this, now in the UK too. So here in London, Casper offers free delivery and free returns in the US and Canada. And now, which is especially exciting for me, in the UK as well. And with Casper, you actually get to sleep on their mattress before you make their decision. You get to try it out for 100 nights, decide if it's the mattress that you want to spend a third of your life on. And if you don't love it, they'll come by, pick it up, and refund you everything. And as a sponsor of this show, they're offering $50 towards any mattress purchased by visiting casper.com slash presentable and using the code presentable at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you so much to Casper for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. Getting back to what you do, are you involved in the development of standards or are you more on the evangelism side once they're kind of set? I do both. Um, so I guess, I mean, I kind of have a multiple jobs at the same time. And one mm -hmm. of them is to, you know, take the time that Mozilla affords me to have to teach people CSS. I'm really focusing on CSS with these yeah. days yeah, yeah. and to teach people um, how to use the new CSS and how to use progressive enhancement and all these kinds of amazing things. So I go to a lot of conferences. I just made, I just shot 30 video, 31 videos wow. in the last week, week and a half that will be coming out this fall, later this fall. Um, and I'll be writing a lot and that kind of stuff. And then also I, while I'm at those conferences and while I'm talking to people online, I'm also constantly doing a form of user testing. What is it that works with people? What, which explanation is really helping people? What tool do people need? Where are people stuck? Where, mm -hmm. what's the frustration right now? And taking that information both to affect the work that I'm doing, but back to Mozilla itself and saying, developers are asking for these things. They need these CSS properties implemented first. Uh, Designers yeah. are have been wishing forever that they could do these things. We should invent a CSS specification to do that. So I'm a member of the CSS working group and go to the meetings um, to help invent new CSS and come up with a, the new stuff that people really need. Um, yep. And also developer tools to be like, okay, CSS Create is completely awesome. But it's hard to learn if you can't see what's going on. Let's make a tool to see what's going on, everybody. Hey, let's make this tool. A year and a half later, hey, look, we're totally shipping version two of this tool where you can click all these buttons and it gives you a chance to see your grid and adjust your grid and see the line numbers and see the area names mm -hmm. and see what's going on. Mm -hmm. So it's fun in that way because I – I interface a lot with platform engineering that builds the browser with DevTools engineering and design that's designing and building DevTools, um, as well as the CSS working group, as well as folks at other browser vendors. Like I had my hands all inside of what was going on with Grid and Safari yeah. and, you know, trying to like make sure we got four, we ended up with four browsers shipping Grid in, in at the same time in March, 2017. Yeah. I want to get to that too, because I was like all over that. Uh, because it's the fun. way that standards are, developed, implemented, and kind of distributed, popularized, is so different than yes. before. So uh, I was on the CSS working group for CSS1, 
for the first one in, in the 90s. <laughs> it's like 1995 or 1996, right around then. Uh, because I was working at Wired Magazine, and they reached out. The browser, the people on the working group from the browsers were like, oh, my God, you guys are doing the cutting-edge design. Come to the working group and tell us what you want. And it sounds a little bit similar to what you're doing now, which is that I essentially had this kind of representational role of, um, you know, HTML does virtually nothing now, and look at this magazine that we produce every month. We kind of want to head in some kind of, web appropriate direction towards that right like i want you know typography and layout and all of these things i mean i was asking for multiple columns in 1995 right and yeah um and so but i got to witness the process firsthand and back then i don't know if it's the same now but back then it was cutthroat like so we had representatives from microsoft and netscape at the table, both of them essentially trying to destroy each other and using the process, oh. the standards process to do that. You know, and this is the era of we're going to ship this browser with whatever we want and we're going to like make sure that we appear to be playing well. And this is, I might be give, portraying this in a, in a somewhat cynical way, but wow, the, like everybody was convinced appropriately that owning the browser was a future to business success on the internet. And so they were yeah. going after it. And the way to do that was to be the browser that supported the stuff that people wanted soonest. And so they would just ship stuff, just ship it and ship it and made just a terrible mess of everything, especially when things like, you know, Netscape's implementation of CSS was a disaster, just bugs everywhere and inconsistencies and things like that. Microsoft trying to kind of in a clean room re-implementation of JavaScript into what they call it. I can't even remember what they called it. It was ECMAScript. I, ECMAScript is the standard that actually they ended up with later, but uh. I don't know. Microsoft made something else that was JavaScript compatible, but worked via ActiveX. And oh, uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, there's this old saying that like laws and sausages are two things we really want in the world, but neither one of them you want to see made. And I would, <laughs> I would add standards to that, at least from my experience back in the '90s. Is it any different now? It is different. And I think I think what you just described is an important piece of history that a lot of folks don't know. I mean, you think about iOS and Android, right? They're head-to-head competitors. And so, oh, we added this like cool button thing in iOS. Well, Android wants it now too. And then they copy it. And then Android's right. like, but we have this other thing that you don't have. And iOS is like, no, we have it now. And yeah. oh, but we did this thing that you're never going to be able to do, right? Like, I think people understand that kind of competition when they think about operating systems or think about hardware, computers, and that is what Netscape versus IE was like. It was like, we're going to add this thing to the browser so that you you don't have it. And there was no, I was not involved in any kind of, I had no connections. I was not on any working group. I know I knew no one back in those days, but I was trying to make websites mm. and it was like, I just thought it was my fault that my websites didn't work in both browsers at the same time. Right, right. <laughs> and and I don't mean that they look slightly differently. I mean like they completely – it would work in one of the browsers and you would open it in the other browser and it was completely yeah, and utterly nothing. broken. Right, just – Like yeah. scrambled eggs beyond <laughs> broken. And that's what I think people don't – like it's not like that at all these days. So for one, the working group, everybody's super nice and even when people are in grumpy moods and they're kind of being jerks, it's so professional and contained in a way that is the way that normal people work on things together that are hard and messy and when they're tired and grumpy. Yeah. Like it's not at all like any of the other open source communities I've been part of where people are actually being really horrible. Mm-hmm. So I hear these, you know, I heard these people were like, Oh, I'm so sorry. You, you know, I joined the working group. I'm like, I joined the working group. People were like, you have my sympathies. I'm so sorry. <laughs> like <laughs> like something really bad has happened in my life and I have enjoyed it immensely. I, some of the smartest people I have, I've ever known when it comes to web technology and understanding how the web works are part of that working group and browser vendors are working super hard to collaborate these days. Everybody who, well, maybe not everybody, but most of the people who are from the other browsers are, they, like, we all have the same job as each other and no one else in the world has that job. There's like 40 people in the world who have this job. Like, of course, everybody's friends and they want to hang out and they're super happy to see each other because they understand each other because we basically do the same kind of thing for different companies. And everybody that I, my feeling is that everybody 
knows how bad it used to be, the the days when the whole point was to be different than other browsers. And these are the folks who want more than anyone else in the world is for it to be the same in every browser, for CSS Grid to be implemented in an identical fashion in every single browser, for any sort of what's called a lack of interop, lack of interoperability, like Flexbox, I've discovered there's a bunch of Flexbox bugs that nobody's even written about that, that are not reported, that are not on this list of Flexbox bugs that are fundamental to Flexbox not being used in the way that it's supposed to be mm -hmm. used because it doesn't actually do the thing it's supposed to do. And that's a problem. It's a lack of interop. It's broken in Safari in one way. It's broken in Chrome in another way. It's broken in IE in a third way. It actually yep. works in Firefox the way it's supposed to. Um, but those three browsers not doing it the way everybody – like the, the way the spec is written is a problem. So like that needs to get fixed. So like I'm going to be trying to talk to those folks. Not – in a mean way, but be like, hey, sure. I think the spec said it should be like this. Let's look at this. This is not interoperable. And everybody will be like, oh, we got to fix that. That needs to be fixed. So. so where do you think the change happened? Do you have any idea? Like over the years where uh, compliance uh. compliance became this goal as opposed to having something the other browser doesn't have as a marketing advantage? You know, I don't know. I think a lot of it was the campaign that the Web Standards Project did mm. and the work that um, there's a whole group of people who really pushed hard. So uh, so public shame? Yeah. And, you know, I don't know. This is all from not knowing as an insider. But, I, you know, Internet Explorer team, they kind of evolved, evolved through version 3, 4, 5, 5.5 yeah. for Mac, 6. And then and then Microsoft was kind of like, we're done. Yeah, 6 is done. And they, my understanding is they kind of shut that team down. And then, like, nothing happened for 10 years. Um, and... It was sort of after that that Microsoft was like, oh, gosh, we just lost a bunch of market share. Maybe we should start making our browser again. And they did IE7, IE8, right. IE9, and they kind of got it together. And they're like, oh, we really have to – let's let's start – let's let's really fix this. Let's change the name to Edge. Let's you know rip out all this ActiveX stuff. Let's yeah. really get on board. Um, and not to say that them doing that switched everything, but I think that – I think there was something about the market in realizing that – you are going to lose in the marketplace if you act like this. Like right. it's not – this is not – everybody needs and wants all these millions of websites. What they need is for the web to have standards and for everyone to implement those standards. Yeah. I think it might also be a factor of how we distribute software and how that changed over like the last decade or so. Huh. Because I remember when I was very kind of active in, in – building stuff in the early nine or early 2000s that Microsoft would ship a version of the browser and you would think, okay, this is all we get for the next two or two and a half years before they ship yeah. another version. It was literally on that time scale. Like it would, yeah. it would ship every time windows shipped. And now you look at things like we're in Chrome version, what 60, I think, you know, yeah. and uh -huh. they, sh every, right. every couple of weeks, like they just push Six. out. Firefox and Chrome come out every six weeks. Every six weeks, yeah. They, mm -hmm. And they just push out a new version and it fixes bugs and it like implements new standards and it is almost entirely right. invisible to the uh, end users. And yep. I think that's made, made a remarkable – like you can, you can make a yeah. mistake in an implementation and, and fix it next month as opposed to, right. you know, now we all have to implement around this mistake for two years. Right, right, yeah, yeah. And Edge is doing the same thing and Safari is not, but I – you know, Apple, it's always you're guessing because they, they can't tell you anything. And I, I would not be surprised if at some point Safari is doing the same thing. They're, they've been edging closer and closer to it with the Safari technical. Oh, like the the point releases for the operating system are always sneaking in Safari, uh, new Safaris and stuff like that. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they have fixed some stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Especially bug stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that for sure that's changed everything. I also think that there are a couple people on the CSS working group right now who are just super geniuses, especially you wanna, um, you wanna call out? Alika Entomat and um, Tab Atkins. Like the two of them have just written these amazing specs. And there's a lot of work being done on the working group to make sure the specs are incredibly robust. In the past, like in the way past with CSS, it felt like the point of a CSS specification was to describe how a th feature, how a thing, a tool should work. Like, oh, we want to be able to specify color. Here's mm -hmm. how color works. Right. Oh, we want to be able to specify line height. Here's how line height works. But these days, 
that is part of it, right? Here is CSS Grid. Here's all the different stuff in CSS Grid. But it's not just that. It's also how is all the buggy behavior going to work? If you do all these weird things that no one should ever do, what will happen? And that stuff gets standardized. Okay, if you take a grid and you float something and then you put a table in it and then you <laughs> – I don't know. I'm making stuff up that doesn't yeah, make yeah. any sense. But like – then the, the working group will have a long conversation about exactly how that should work so that bugs, which might not turn out to be bugs, they might turn out to be the next hot new technique in yep. web design, yep. will be the same in every browser. And I think that's part of the huge difference. Um, even between when Flexbox was written and when Grid was written, I think the working group has gotten – better and better and better and better at this and understanding the whole system of layout mm. and layout's the hardest part of CSS mm -hmm. and understanding like, Oh, this is, should this be a new block formatting context? I don't know. Is this going to blockify that? Like there's just all these vocabulary words that I still don't, I'm like, what, wait, <laughs> what is that again? Well, this replaced, so how's this going to behave for replace elements? Da, da, da. Like <laughs> there's so much stuff I've learned. Yeah. Um, that I, you don't need to know as a developer, but as a person who invents specifications or, or implements a browser, you have to, there's a, there's a level of complexity that has been mastered by the whole, by the community, yeah. by the people who invented oh, yeah. the, who invent the web. Like there's a, like there's a, the medium itself grew up to a certain place. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Well, so that's interesting. So the, the standards committees are being much more prescriptive because they have this whole body of experience on which to fall back. Yes. Yeah. They're like, yep, that didn't work out very well. Like, for example, the switch from prefixes to flags, there was this idea, it used to be that, you know, the specs would get written and they were all theoretical. We uh -huh. think this code is going to be awesome. Let's put it in browsers, right? And then over time, hand wavy, hand wavy history, I think my sense is that people, folks realized, oh, we need a way to do a draft. Like it's one thing to imagine border radius and implement it immediately, but it's another thing to imagine Flexbox. We need to, we need a way to have a, a draft and implement it and test it out and see if it's doing what we thought it would do and write some real code and see how that works out. Yeah. So let's make this flag thing. We'll put a dash webkit, a dash ms, a dash moz, a dash o, and then you can right. write code. Right. So each each vendor would have a little bit of text that you would put in front of all the declarations in the CSS. Yes. Then only their browser, right? And so you could do, you, you, right. would, you would have multiple, I remember this from the, when we were first really investing in at font face. Right, like linking mm -hmm. fonts and stuff, and there and there would be all of these different sort of like how you handle ligatures and stuff, and we could and you put block after block after block in your CSS, each with a different vendor prefix to try it out in that browser. So that's that was well, basically the, the, where it was, right? I think the original idea was, you know, well, the folks who are working on WebKit have this idea, but no one's agreed to it yet, so they're just going to implement it and they're going to put a WebKit prefix on it, and that's fine because then it's like. Oh, it's it's often a corner where no one can use it. It's just sort of like the rough draft of the spec. And when we agree, and then oh look, this other browser did it differently, and they had this other way of doing it. And now we're having a long discussion about it, us people in the CSS working group. And then when we right. agree, we're going to make the real spec, and we'll implement it for real. And they'll be, and you won't use the prefix, right? You'll just yeah. have the non-prefix. But what happened is that authors came along, and I was one of them especially around the time when CSS3 was new and there were all these three CSS3 books and conference talks and stuff, CSS3. Um, and that's when, as a person who makes websites, I first became aware of prefixes. Uh, and it was like, awesome, I want to use border radius. Okay, we'll just like put the prefix on it. Okay, well, you get to write, oh, that's annoying, you have to write all that crap, but that's fine. Uh, yeah. It means I can use it today. And so we started, the people, the authors, people who... CSS working group calls us authors, developers, started writing mm -hmm. all this code using the prefix, prefixes, and we weren't supposed to. <laughs> and so the specs kept changing. Like Flexbox changed two, three, no, well, not three, but it changed twice, I think. This, significant changes were made to the Flexbox specification. And so you ended up with all these uh, prefixes that were sort of stuck, like they stayed around and we had to keep rewriting them and all these blog posts were written and then they had to get rewritten. And then you were, so I remember for a while, anytime I would do a search for Flexbox to learn something, I would look at the date. And if it was before 2012, I would just immediately ignore it because that was the old specification. Like right. it was a mess. Yep. It was a total and complete mess. And so folks came along and they were like, this is ridiculous. We're not doing this anymore. There are no more. I think it was Chrome who first said, we're not doing flags anymore. I mean, you know, prefixes anymore. 
And I was like, that's terrible. We need prefixes. Why would you? I hate that idea. Don't. I was wrong. Um, <laughs> it was genius because what happened is they switched to using, everybody switched to using flags. So if you want to test out, if you wanted to test out grid three years ago, you could have, you just had to like open up Chrome and turn it up. Maybe not two years ago. Yeah. You could like open up Firefox two years ago and turn on grid on your own personal copy of Firefox. Oh, like a, like write, a user preference, so to speak. But, like a user yeah. preference in behind like a secret door. That's super scary and nerdy and weird. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. So you, like I personally could sit here all last year and I did, and I turned on grid in all my browsers. And then I wrote all these demos and did these videos and made these examples and right. Uh -huh. But I couldn't ship real code uh. to, for normal people, because normal people are not going to, I can't be like, step one, go to my website. Step two, turn on your right, like right. user preference for this feature. <laughs> so what that meant is it gave the CSS working group the freedom to continue to make huge changes to grid while no one was shipping websites using grid. Got it. And they were able to be like, hey, let's add gaps. Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, oh, let's totally change this syntax. Oh, you know what? We still don't like it. Let's totally change it again. Let's change the name of that thing. Let's. And for five years, the CSS Working Group did that. First, you know, on paper, but then in real code, in real browsers. And people could write – Rachel Andrew was writing examples for four years or something. Um and, the, and getting hands-on experience and then bringing those ideas back to the working group and making the thing better, 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 better. And then when it shipped, basically in March, a lot of people, you know, people on the internet were like, I can't use that. That's going to be buggy. I don't want to. I mean, I would wait five years before I can. It's like, no, right. the five years are over. It's actually not – I mean, there's, sure, there's a couple bugs, but there's hardly any because – this thing's been almost done for a year. Mm -hmm. We've been mm -hmm. running tests and making demos for a year. It's been under construction for five years. Like it's, you just didn't know it because there was a flag and it was all in, mm -hmm. you know, behind a flag and you didn't, you know. So when Grip shipped, it, sh it shipped in four browsers at the same time because the only thing people had to do, the browser makers had to do to ship it, is just like turn on the flag permanently. So to that end now, what is, what is adoption like? for uh, something to be deemed safe these days, right? Like, like I said, it used to take years, and it was incredibly frustrating earlier in my career. But it, but that has gotten much, much quicker now because of this the, the way we're developing the software. So if something comes out in March, does that mean like today I could put it in production and I don't have to worry about kind of older browsers? Or are we not quite uh, there yet? You could have put it in production six months ago. Uh -oh. it, but of course you have to worry about older browsers. Um, I think the... Like the question you asked is the question, right? When can I start using this? When is it safe? What do I need to do? Right. Because 100% of my users don't have this thing. And that's true. 100% of users don't have grid. And it might be eight years before 100% of users have grid. So, but I'm not waiting eight years. I'm going to ship it today. Um, <laughs> so there's this, this, web, this website I love called caniuse.com, right? Yes. And you go to caniuse.com, you type in grid or you type in anything and yep. it shows you this great, like, visualization of where it's implemented, where it isn't, and how many people are using it. I guess they have some mechanism for figuring that out. Um, they get the stats from uh, Stats Counter. Uh, oh, right. Stats Counter still around. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Which may or may not be accurate. No, of course. Probably, of course. But you it, know, we don't have accurate. We, that's, that's as good as we that's have. As good as you get. Right now it says that using it globally is about 65%. 65%. So, um, so that's pretty remarkable right. considering March is not that long ago as we're recording yeah. now in the end of July. So the, but I, so I, that's one thing. Definitely. You go and you look at the number. Also, you can plug in your own, if you use Google analytics, you can plug in your own right. Google analytics to can I use and it'll switch oh, really? the percentage to your audience. Yeah. You click on where it says settings and then you can switch countries because by default it's global. You can, if you want to look at, uh, the can I use data, Focusing on a specific country, you can do that. Or if you want to plug in your own Google Analytics, you can do that. And then you can like see all those those uh, charts and you can make graphs and you can see them. You know, it's super powerful. That's I cool. actually made a video about it. It will be out later. Um, but I don't think that that's the most important question because sometimes the number's really low. Like initial letter, you can only – it only works in Safari at the moment and – that's, I don't know, maybe 11% of the global market. Yeah. But I would I would ship code using initial letter today. And then there's other things like writing mode sideways that 
even if it were 95% support for writing mode sideways, which it's not, uh, I probably wouldn't use it until it was, I wouldn't use it if it were 80%. I would wait until it was more like 95%. Because of the nature or, of like how it degrades. Is that the sort of, because of, and Jeremy Keith phrases this so beautifully. He says the most important question to be at, to ask when you're considering whether or not to use a technology is how well does it fail? Like what happens when it fails. And with CSS, the beautiful thing about CSS is that um, because it's a declarative language, it doesn't, if a browser hits a line of CSS, it doesn't understand. It doesn't do what it would do if it were JavaScript or another programming language. It doesn't stop rendering the page. It doesn't throw a big red error. It doesn't crash the browser. It doesn't do it. It's not catastrophe. It yep. just sees that line of code and it skips it and it goes to the next line of code, right? Uh, so, you can use things that don't work in a whole bunch of browsers because it will work in the other browsers. It will work in, you know, let's say it works in 40% of your users' browsers, but it doesn't work in for 60% of your people. Well, then the question becomes, what happens to those 60% of people? If you're using something like border radius, well, they get square corners. If you're using initial letter, well, you just don't have a big letter. It just it stays small. It's, it's like you didn't use it at all, especially if you use a feature query and you wrap up any other CSS that you were writing at the same time in that yeah. feature query. Uh -huh. So it all runs if that one feature is supported or it all gets ignored if that one feature is not supported. Where we say with writing mode sideways, well, then I don't get any kind of writing mode uh, writing mode is for determining the direction in which the content is flowing and writing mode sideways is something you could use to take a headline and rotate it 90 degrees so that it runs vertically. Mm. Um, especially say a, a headline that is in a language that's normally typeset horizontally like English and you want to rotate it 90 degrees clockwise or 90 degrees counterclockwise writing mode sideways is awesome for that but if you don't have support for it then it just stays horizontal right. which maybe is awesome but maybe in the layout you have you actually do need it to rotate or you would like it to rotate if it could and with grid i think the thing that scares people about grid is obviously it's not something simple like border radius it's super complicated and you're thinking but what happens if my users get no layout that's not okay like okay well they're not going to get no layout they're going to get whatever layout you've applied before you applied grid. So, and if you applied nothing, they're going to get flow layout. They're going to get just like the regular document flow layout. Now we've, we've been talking about grid quite a bit. Maybe you could uh, step back and just tell, tell me a little bit about how different this is and, and just what's the big picture around this shift? Yeah. So CSS grid is a big, huge, thick specification that, um, has been written that defines a layout system. It's almost like taking a layout framework. Frequently people these days, they use something like bootstrap or they right. use something foundation or yeah, there's yeah. a bunch. 960.js was one of the most popular first original ones. Um, and they use that like a third party tool. It's almost like someone took a real layout framework and put it in CSS. Got it. Um, People shouldn't make a framework out of grid. They should just use grid because uh -huh. grid is a framework for layout. Um, and if, if folks have done layout in something like Swift or other kinds of programming languages, like app languages, software languages, they might recognize some of the concepts because it um, is similar to some of those. Uh, if you do nothing in CSS, you get what's called flow layout, where things just kind of start in um, uh, horizontal writing modes, they just start at the top of the page and they flow down the page. Right. And then you could float things. Floats is a thing that we've used for years. But we've been using floats to um, try to fake having a layout system for many, many, many years. And using floats for the whole page layout is super duper, super painful. And that's the reason that we have all these third-party frameworks is because they were attempting to abstract the pain and to make it easier to use floats <laughs> by kind of hiding all of those horrible experiences away and predefining a, a set of like layouts and saying, oh, look, here's, you know, choose from these six layouts. You can use any of these. We've already coded them for you. Um, but I don't, you know, I'm tired of seeing every website using the same layout. Like it, we're not all using the same WordPress theme. Why are we using all this, the same five bootstrap layouts? Yep. Uh, so grid is, it can replace all of that. Grid can be used instead of using one of those tools and it gives you the chance to define columns and those columns can be defined 
some of them could be fixed pixel widths. Some of them can be like based on the size of the content that's inside of them, which is a power we've not had where you can kind of let the content be the size it wants to be. And then that affects the grid itself rather than the other way around. Uh, you can define them to be like ratios compared to each other. So, and that's what we've been doing, trying to do with percents where we'd say, right. you know, yep. 25%, 25%, 25%, 25%. So grid takes this different mental model where it's like you say one FR, one FR, one FR, one FR, which means you get one fraction, you get one fraction, you get one fraction, you get one fraction. Oh, there's four of you total. Okay. That means you got one quarter, you got one quarter, you got one quarter, you got one quarter. Oh, how much is one quarter? I don't know. I'm a computer. I can do math. I'll do that math for you. Mm -hmm. So we, as the developers don't have to kind of pre-know what that will be. We can just let the browser figure it out, which means you can mix fixed width columns with fluid columns in a way that you could never do before. You can have a rail of ads that are a fixed size, and then you can have the rest of the space be split up into three columns that grow and shrink as space is available. Yeah. All these things that were totally not possible before. And then you can also define rows, which is completely mind-blowing and changes everything. Um, all the same ideas about how to define them apply identically to columns and rows, but being able to define rows means you can define vertical space. So you could define an entire row and leave it empty, and then you have white space. You can, <laughs> you can make rows and then place things in different cells on your grid or what in kind of grid design language is called a module, but in the CSS world, it's called a cell. Um, you can place things in those cells and they stay there. Unlike floats. <laughs> right. Right. I was, I was, I was I, a couple of years ago, I was like, how do, what's the right metaphor for floats? What is it that floats do? And I was like, it's like having a giant bathtub full of bars of soap and you <laughs> Like you rejigger the bath, like responsive web design is like taking the size of the bathroom and moving them closer and further apart. And the, and the bars of soap just rearrange themselves, but they all still desperately want to be at the top of the page. Like we, we had no way you could like put a top margin on something and try to shove it further down, but it just, it's it, terrible. It was terrible. Where with grid, you could actually define space vertically and place things in those spaces. So I'm glad you mentioned uh, responsive design. It sounds like a lot of the motivation behind the CSS grid work is in response to that, to make that much more uh, native to the browsers. Yeah, I mean, I, I know the, the CSS working group, when they invented media queries, had a vision <clears throat> for you know what to do about mobile, that the screen sizes were clearly, re you know, we were getting more and more and more different sizes of screens. And so that... Uh, the working group knew that designers and developers would need tools to be able to respond to those things and to define different buckets of CSS based on the screen size. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I think that everything about Grid, everything about Grid happened after that reality. We switched to the new reality of many sizes of screens. And so everything about it is about flexible, like squishiness and how to handle different sizes of content and size different sizes inside different sizes of screens. And, um, there's nothing about grid that assumes you're doing things for a fixed size, uh, canvas. No. And, mm -hmm. and that's part of the power of it is that it, it really gives us tools, the kind of tools we sort of have needed all along. And the ideas around, you know, oh, the way you should do responsive web design is to take this fixed pixel number and divide it by this other fixed pixels right. number and get this percent that has a whole bunch of decimal points and use that percent. Like those ideas are going to go away. Right. And that, uh, and that idea even that like you can define things in grid using percents, you can define your gaps using percents, you can define your columns using percents. But the, the deeper I've gotten into grid, the less and less and less I use percents or I think about percents. Mm. And I'm like, oh, we're never going to use percents again. Like percents are... I guess there are a couple good reasons to use it, but mostly you're going to use FR units, fraction units. Um, so everything is just so much easier. Genuinely, genuinely uh, relative to the context it's being displayed in. It's genuinely of the web. Yeah. And the web as a medium is a squishy, flexible medium yeah. where you don't know even 
the aspect ratio. You don't know the aspect ratio of how people are looking at your work, and you don't even know whether it's kind of portrait orientation or landscape orientation. Exactly. And everything about this new CSS layout system, because it's not just grid. It's also grid plus Flexbox, plus floats, plus flow content, plus all the other multi-column layout. Like, it's a toolkit with a whole bunch of tools, um, and we'll use them all, and we'll use them all together at the same time on every project. We're not going to you know, choose one and ignore the others. You mix them together. Yeah. So that whole entire new system of layout is um, is very much of the medium that is the web. Yeah. And it only took 20 years for us to get there. Not bad. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so the, right. the last question I have for you is really around keeping up to date. So I, you know, I love this stuff and even I feel completely overwhelmed by how much has changed in front-end development that... Um, that really kind of defines what is and isn't possible in the design work that we're doing. I know many people that are listening now may not spend day, day after day in a text editor or even uh, even something like Sketch anymore, but need to keep their heads around like, oh my God, so much is changing and what are we capable of doing in the products that we're developing? How on earth do you keep on top of all of this? Yeah, I mean, I I'm an, I I really like the position that I'm in because I'm able to spend time to keep on top of it, and mm. I, like I'm keeping on top of it so you don't have to, <laughs> <laughs> right? Like that's my job is to is to go read specifications I haven't even heard of and and be like, oh yeah, nobody's gonna use that, or oh my gosh, that's the best thing ever. Why has no one talked about feature queries? Why has no one talked about writing modes? Like we need to be using these tools. I need to, so, and then I write articles about them and try to really bring everyone's attention to those yeah. things. I do think there's a lot to keep up with. And I think for people who are writing code, it's easy to get overwhelmed because there's like the hot new tool, whatever. And my advice to those folks is to, like we want to spend our time on the code that's going to be around for the rest of our careers, like HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Time spent learning CSS is time that will never be wasted as long as you're writing code, right? Like because CSS is not going to go out of fashion. Right. Um, I think some of these other tools like, oh, let's use Gulp. No, Gulp is out. Let's use Grunt. No, right, Grunt is out. Right. Let's use Broccoli. Like some of that um, – if you're enjoying that roller coaster ride, then like have fun, enjoy it. But if you are getting overwhelmed by it, like just ignore it. You grab a tool after you have a problem and use that tool to solve the problem that you have. And don't worry about learning every tool for all the problems that you don't have yet because you can't and you're not going to probably ever need those tools. Like it's fine to get quote unquote behind. Um, I certainly am. There are plenty of tools that I um, I used to try to keep up, but now I'm just like, whatever, I don't care. Like, it's fine. <laughs> right. I have my way of building things. I have my way of doing things. I like keeping things simple. I've been using this way for three years. I don't need to change it. Like, yep. I'll change it when I need to change right? For designers, and this to me is the question of how is it that designers can find out how the web has changed as a medium and how we should be designing differently, especially designers who do not write code, especially designers who've never learned CSS and probably aren't going to or they don't really want to. Right. Um, because I think that everything has changed. I think this is actually a bigger change to graphic design on the web than responsive web design was. Mm. And I want that change to happen. Um, with all the work that you did in making web fonts happen, Typography changed forever, and there is a giant conversation going on and started many years ago around, gosh, what does it mean to have more than five fonts for the web? <laughs> yeah. how, do I, how do I pick fonts? What do I do? How do I use them? How do I implement them? And I want to have that a conversation that is that large and that complex and robust, it has, involves that many people, around layout design. And typography used to mean – font selection and typesetting plus layout because the typographers were the people doing layout. And now typography means just the font selection and the like picking the fonts because layout has been abstracted into a separate technical bucket and it's done in a different step. And I want designers to be involved. I want designers to come along and say, I'm going to design a page and I'm going to do, I'm going to lay out an article. We've seen 
layouts for articles a million times, but I want this lay. I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to come up with something. I'm going to, we have a established newspaper with reporters that are doing investigative journalism. And this is really important work. And I want to convey the trustworthiness of this work and the yeah. importance of this work, not only through the typography, which I'm putting a lot of effort into, but also through the layout. I'm not just going to drop it into a layout that looks like medium so that when people land on this page, <laughs> they're like, I don't know where I am. It looks like just another website on the right. Like, how yep. can you use layout? And there are the New York Times and the Atlantic, especially stand out in my mind yeah. as two organizations that have put a lot of effort into that. They put a lot of effort into that using floats because that's all they had. Right. I want to see what they come up with with grid and I want to see what the rest of us come up with when we don't have the kind of budgets that they have, right? Like we don't have four people who can dedicate their time to reinventing article layout. You've got like one person who's doing 17 things and you've got, you know, one day to come up with a new layout. Right. Um, but we, but because grid is so easy to use and because it's so powerful, we're going to be freed up to do some amazing things that in the past it was like, oh, you can't do that. Or, oh, I guess we could do that, but that'd take like a week's worth of engineering and we right. can't afford it. Right. right. Like, fine. No, don't put a week's worth of engineering into it. Put like an hour's worth of engineering into it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we're not going to, you know, we're not going to see the kind of change that would be possible if designers don't know that everything has just changed. Um, so everything I've done the last three years has been to try to teach everybody this. So you can go to my website, jensimmons.com. I've got um, three one-hour conference talks oh, where I go through this kind of material. And I just took a lot of that material and made 31 10-minute videos that will be coming out in the fall. Like, And I want to be writing articles. I want to write a book about this, so, so like a graphic design book for art schools and stuff that like explains the web as a medium and explain – because I think this is super-duper important. And I think if we don't do this, then we're just going to have mid-2000 teen decades web design forever. And uh, I don't want that to happen. Uh so jensimmons.com will send people there to have a look at the yeah. stuff you're writing and the videos that are on their way. It's a good way to get your head around what's happening in CSS Grid. You're Jen Simmons on Twitter as well. Is that right? Yes. Great. Yep. So we'll follow you there. Jen, thanks so much. This has been so helpful and incredibly, incredibly entertaining. So thank you for being on thanks. the show. Thanks for having me. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.